article this morning, um, didn't have time to print it out, but it was, it was about the origins of humanity. And what it, what it stated was that according, they did a new DNA study and putting all of the, of the data that they had together, the conclusion was that human beings were unique creatures that came from, get this, one man and one woman. Now there's disagreement as to how long ago that was, et cetera, but it's like, okay, well, people are getting there a little at a time. According to the biblical record, that's exactly what happened, but that's, that's just a contemporary story. People today have a lot of ideas about the afterlife or what happens when we die. Most believe in some kind of existence, whether it's heaven or nirvana or reincarnation. Some believe our spirits when we die just kind of float around the earth or the universe and they're either haunting or helping people that are here, left on earth. Competing claims about the afterlife are not new. In the first century AD, there were many beliefs about the afterlife. And some of them had influenced the Christian church in Corinth. And against that backdrop, Paul writes about the, the hope that believers have in the afterlife, specifically as it relates to the resurrection. Last Sunday, we looked at the first part of the good news, the gospel. And that stated Christ died for our sins. We, we discovered that Jesus died on our behalf, died for our sins. Jesus died as a substitute so we didn't have to die. And Jesus died to bring us to God. His whole purpose of coming to die was to restore the relationship of human beings to God the Father. And today we're gonna to look at the second part of the gospel, the good news. In verse four of the text we're looking at, it says he was buried and he was raised again on the third day. And as we return to 1 Corinthians 15, and this is the last in the series on 1 Corinthians, that as we're gonna look at today, there's still a little bit in chapter 16, but you're gonna to have to read that on your own because we're getting into Christmas, okay? Just so you know. We're gonna to return to 1 Corinthians 15. I will be reading excerpts, and we're going to look at four major topics today, four major topics. One is the proofs of the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection, the nature of the resurrection body, and then the final victory, final victory, that, the fact that we win. Everybody likes to win, right? We win at the end. So I'd like us to read 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to find it in the Bible in the rack in front of you, it's page 933. 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, we're gonna start with verse 12 and read through 20. There's a lot, there's a lot of material in this passage, and one of the reasons I give you passages of scripture, uh, some, some will be on the PowerPoint, some you can look up later, uh, just so you can study this, because there's so much here, we can't cover it all in one message, but uh, we want to get through as much as we can. So, starting with verse 12 of chapter 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those of you who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There's a philosopher of the New Testament, Dr. William Lane Craig, and he writes this. He says, without belief in the resurrection, the Christian faith could not have come into being. The disciples would have remained crushed and defeated men. Even had they continued to remember Jesus as their beloved teacher, his crucifixion would have forever silenced any hopes of his being the Messiah. The cross would have remained the sad and shameful end of his career. The origin of Christianity, therefore, hinges on the belief of the early disciples that God had raised Jesus from the dead. Critical to our Christian faith. Let's start by looking at the proofs of the resurrection. Roman numeral one, proofs of the res resurrection. Now, this is an entire study in and of itself, and we're just gonna talk about three proofs because Paul addresses those here in 1 Corinthians 15. Three pr proofs. The purpose of him writing these is not to prove the resurrection because Paul assumed that they already believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They were living in that time and they had plenty of evidence themselves. But the first proof was the empty tomb. The empty tomb. No body was ever found. All Jesus' enemies had to do to stop this radical new belief in the Messiah, Jesus, all they had to do was produce a body. Instead, they just produced stories, stories. The most common story was the disciples stole the body. There were many theories, but no body. The, the unique feature of Christianity over against Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and any other religions is that you can visit the tombs of all these religious founders, and they're there. Their bodies are there, their remains are there. Jesus' tomb, empty, big difference. Secondly, were the physical appearances, physical appearances. It's interesting, we looked at this last Sunday, verse three through five of 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as, as uh, first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Wow, physical appearances. Paul speaks of, Eyewitness accounts, these are historical accounts of Jesus appearing to people after his resurrection. Actual fact is established by as many as 500 witnesses at one time. The theory that there was some kind of a, uh, a delusion of some sort, well, it doesn't, does, this doesn't happen with 500 people at the same time. Although 1 Corinthians was written around 50 AD, these four verses are what many scholars believe was an early creed, that these verses three through five of 1 Corinthians 15 were like an, like an apostle's creed that the early church said on occasion. They, they basically, it was a summary statement of faith that Christians would recite, and it was established within just a few years of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So they stated this much like we would state the apostles' creed. Now, Kenneth Chafin writes this. He says that the gospel is based upon a historical event is of great importance to Christians today. He quotes one writer who did not believe in the resurrection 
and said that he felt that the accounts of the resurrection were nothing but faith's expressions of what the disciples had wanted to happen. The author imagined an upper room scene in which they were all lamenting the one who had loved them so freely and he should have died as the object of such hatred and that one of those teaching had such authority would be silenced so young. Then in the scenario he was imagining in his mind, he had one of the disciples jump to his feet and shout, we will not let him die. The way he lived, we will live. The things he taught, we will teach. The mission he had will become our mission. We will not let him die. The plain inference is that the church had created the resurrection. <laughs> the exact opposite is true. It was the risen Christ and nothing else that transformed that defeated band of followers into witnesses so bold that they turned their world upside down. The resurrection was not some carrying forth of ideals or ideas. It was a historical fact that transformed their lives. Physical appearances, and the third proof comes out of that is the change in the disciples, the change in the disciples. The disciples were changed from cowering cowards, hiding in secret, to bold proclaimers, willing to give their lives for the fact that they knew to be true. In fact, most of the disciples died martyrs' deaths, proclaiming the resurrection. Now, martyrs will die for a lot of things, but probably not for a lie, something they know to be a lie. They knew that Jesus had been resurrected. They had seen him. They knew it. It was a fact. The changed lives of the disciples to bold, boldly proclaim was an incredible proof of the resurrection. Let's look at the importance of the resurrection. What's the importance of the resurrection? We read, read in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20. And the first one is it shows that Jesus was and is God. Letter A, Jesus was and is God. Romans 1, 3 through 4 says, Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection established the fact that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God incarnate. He claimed to be God himself. If you don't believe that, just read through the book of John and see all the claims that Jesus made. John 8, John 17, all kinds of places. He claimed to be one with God. And without the establishment of Jesus as God, as part of the Godhead, he couldn't pay for our sins. Now, why do you say that? Well, Maybe a, a, a regular person could pay for one person's sins. You know, I could die for you and save you. But Jesus was to die for all the sins of all humanity for all time. How could he do that? He was God. He was infinite. So his sacrifice was of infinite price. That's the only way he can die for the whole sins of the whole world. The resurrection shows that Jesus was in his God. Secondly, it shows that what Jesus said is true. In, in Romans, that's what he said is true. Matthew 12, 40 says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. By the way, he used the illustration of Jonah as a historical fact, but that's a whole other thing. Matthew 16, 21, Jesus said, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. 
So Jesus predicted his own death, his burial, and his resurrection. And incidentally, the burial is very important because it shows he really did die. He died. And even in this day of an age of legalized suicide, it's very difficult to predict accurately the time and the place of our death, let alone the claim of being raised on the third day. Some critics have said that the gospel writers added these words afterwards to Jesus and attributed it to him just to prove the point. Well, if that's the case, then the question is raised, why did the religious leaders want a Roman guard at Jesus' tomb? Why do they want to guard a dead man? Who guards a dead man? The leaders said, Jesus said while he was here, he said he was, he was going to rise again, so let's make sure it doesn't happen. Good luck with that. In Matthew 27, it talks about that. Matthew 27, verse 63, it says, the next day, one of the, after the preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. Ah, so they knew that he had claimed after three days he was going to rise again. So give an order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. And there are all kinds of things associated with the, the Roman guard. The Roman guard was 16 soldiers, uh, four on a side that could actually protect their leader indefinitely with short swords. They, they, these were the top soldiers. These were the special forces, Navy SEALs of that day. That's who was guarding the tomb. Third, the, the resurrection shows that God was satisfied. God was satisfied. God accepted Jesus' death as payment enough. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over for, to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Raised because of our justification. Justify means to be declared not guilty. Go to court and you're declared not guilty. And his resurrection declared us not guilty, just as if I'd never sinned. When Jesus was raised from the dead, God demonstrated that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. Those of you who wrestle with guilt, and probably every one of us do at some point in time in our history, wrestling with guilt, the resurrection proves that Jesus paid for your sins. He paid. He paid. You don't have to try to carry him. You don't have to pay for him yourself. Your sin is paid for. And the resurrection, the importance, is that that proves it. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, if, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. But Christ has been raised from the dead. Shows that since he has been raised, we are not in our sins. Letter D, it provides a new quality of life. Romans 6, 3 through 4 says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. A new life. We walk a new life. We get a new start. We become a new person. We are powerless in and of ourselves to change ourselves. You know, we were, we were talking about um, in our family 
uh, both of our daughters are home for Thanksgiving. We were talking about our family dysfunctions. Of course, you know, you look at that, or, you know, our family's not nearly as dysfunctional as other families. You know, you just say, you play that game. And of course, as, as we talk to other friends and find out, oh, every family has some dysfunction, really. You know, there's no perfect family. And that's because of brokenness. We have a lot of brokenness in our culture. We just, we are broken people and we have dysfunction. We have all kinds of things that we deal with. And we are powerless to change that. We are powerless to change that. Unless we're transformed by the power of Jesus Christ through the resurrection. That the power, the power. Otherwise, we're just destined to cope with the brokenness and dysfunction of our culture and society. But because of the resurrection, he gives new life. It's the power of the resurrection that gives us the ability to, to change and be transformed and live new lives. Our tendency is to selfishness and self-pleasing, but the, the Holy Spirit of Jesus, through being born again and his resurrection power, reverses our downward spiral and brings a brand new life. We have power in Jesus Christ because of the resurrection. He's alive. He defeated sin. Number five, letter E, the resurrection gives hope, gives hope. Verse 20, it says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. How many of us need hope today? How many, you know, one of the things that's lacking all over our universe today, and all you have to do is watch the news. 98% of it's negative, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. People living without hope, without hope. We need hope. And if we hope in this life alone, it, what is there? It's kind of that, that, that pop song that said, if this is all there is, let's just keep on dancing. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. It's this fatalistic approach to life. We have no hope. We're just going to kind of live our life and hope for the best. Empty life, empty of hope. If we are hoping in a dead man, what hope is there? So how does the resurrection give us hope? Letter F, it guarantees everyone will be re resurrected someday. Everyone will be resurrected someday. Verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. This is a little complicated. It gets a little muddy here. You wonder, what, what's this first fruits thing? Those of you who uh, are involved in agriculture know a little bit more about that. But I'd like to use the term prequel and sequel. Okay, let's do that. A prequel, everybody knows what a prequel is, right? The movie comes out, and then you have the sequel and the sequel, and then they say, we've gone far enough that direction, we're going to have to have a prequel that shows what happened before the original movie, whatever that movie is. Okay, prequels and sequels. Jesus was raised from the dead. That was the event. That was the movie event. Now there's the sequel, which is resurrection for us. First fruit means the event. The sequel is what happens afterwards. First fruits were part of the harvest given to God. And the first fruit was the offering that was given to assure the person that the rest of the harvest was going to come after it. So there was going to be a, a sequel after the first fruit was the fruit afterwards, a sequel. Well, Jesus' resurrection was the event. 
He preceded us in his resurrection. So he's the guarantee of the sequel. The guarantee of our resurrection at his second coming, future. So we have a guarantee of living forever, a guarantee against hopelessness. Of course, the question is, where, where am I going to spend that sequel or that last part of eternity? Where? Final importance of the question of the resurrection is how important is it for me to believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? Sometimes this is a little abstract and say, well, I know that's what the church believes and we've always felt that. How important is that? I would propose to you, letter G, belief in the resurrection is essential for salvation. Belief in the resurrection is essential for salvation. Romans 10, 9 to 10 says, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth you confess and are saved. It says, believe in your heart. I will never forget the story of the, a member of my congregation came up to me one day. We'd been talking about the resurrection. And he shared something with me. He said, you know, I've attended church all my life. He says, I've known all the facts about Christianity. I've known all of those things. But he said, when you talked about Romans 10, this passage, he said, I realized that I did not really believe in the resurrection. I, I just couldn't accept it. And he said, and I realized then, by definition, I'm not saved. Belief in the resurrection, critical to salvation. It's, it is impossible for God to save us from our sins unless we believe this last part of this message, this good news, that Jesus died for your sins, he was buried, and Jesus was raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. Doesn't mean we have to understand it all, but we must by faith believe it and embrace that truth. Do you really believe that today? So what does the future hold for us? What is it going to be like when we're resurrected? Let's look at the nature of the resurrected body. You know, because people say we're going to be like this, you're going to be like an angel on a cloud playing a harp, and most of us don't think that looks very fun. So we think, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, we have all these pictures about what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. Okay, well, it's probably not going to be like that. Um, First, Corinthians, First Thessalonians 4, and I'm just going to read this. Uh, we don't have it on PowerPoint, but I just want to read this, and it, it's important that you read this so that you understand this at some time as well. First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Um, and, and Paul was writing this passage to people who were confused about some of this. And he says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. In other words, he said a lot of people uh, just don't know what's going to happen about those that die and, and we don't want to leave you with any, without hope. And he says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Okay, here it is. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, those who have died. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, 
will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. What is he? He's talking about the rapture at the end of time. The dead in Christ, those who have died and are buried, will be caught up first. Those who are alive and remain will be caught up. We will be raptured and we will be with God forever, with Jesus forever. If we know him, those who are dead in Christ, those who are in Christ, those who believe and embrace the resurrection of Jesus Christ are born again. See, we have hope. We have hope. The nature of the resurrected body. Now, when we look at history, we look back at history, we discover that until about 1492 AD, everybody thought the world was flat. They taught it in history class. They just said geography. The world's flat. Everybody said the world's flat. And if you sailed over the horizon, you'll fall off the edge of the earth and you'll never return again. That was, that's what they all believed. It's common belief. And no one had ever returned. Must be true. But all that changed in 1492 when Columbus sailed over the horizon, discovered a brand new world, and returned saying over the horizon is a brand new world and this is what life is like over the horizon. Amazing. Well, many today talk about the afterlife, the life over the horizon in the same way. No one knows what it's like since no one has ever returned. No one has ever come back to tell us about it. Actually, someone has. He crossed the horizon, experienced death, and lived to tell about it. He came back to life. That was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. See, death is a mystery to us. Only one person really understood the full meaning of death because he came back. Jesus helps us understand that death is not the end, it's just the beginning. The beginning. Death is a change point, it's a transition from one type of life to another. Now, we have a lot of questions that we cannot answer, just like these people in the church at Corinth had questions, and Paul had interesting answers. And in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the last part of this passage, 42 to 44. He says, but some may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives his own body. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, raised in glory, is sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. These people were asking, is there life after death? And if there is life after death, what is it like? What kind of bodies will we have? That's a, that's a legit question. What's gonna be the state of our existence? And Paul uses agriculture because they understood it. And he says, number one, this body must die first. This body has to die first. This life must end before the next life begins. A seed, when it's sown in the ground, dies. And when it dies, it produces life. If the seed doesn't die, there's new, no new life. Those of you that understand agriculture knows that. You plant a seed, it dies, then it produces life. That life must end before a new life begins. And we spend a lot of time and energy trying to keep this life going. But we don't spend much time preparing for phase two, the next life. The Bible tells us that 
death is inevitable. Last time I checked, the mortality rate for all humans was and still is 100%. Still is. But death is a transition to a new life. To be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in the analogy of the seed, Paul tells us that one living thing through death can have two modes of existence. It's sown one way, raised in another. The same body moves from one form of existence to another form of existence. One life, two modes. One before death, one after death and the resurrection. There is the difference between the present earthly body and the future heavenly body. So a new body is transformed. That's the first one. Truth number two is this body is perishable, the next is imperishable. This body is perishable, the next imperishable. And I know, I know my body's aging. I've got knees, you've got knees, you've got hips, you've got shoulders, you've got, we all have joints. And, and you get older and you go, oh, I didn't know that felt like that. You know, it's kind of like one of those things. You guys smile, just wait, you guys are young, don't know this, but that's okay. What is the state of our existence? This one is perishable, the next one is imperishable. Number three, this body is sown in dishonor, it's raised in power. Uh, when a body dies, it's weak, it's dishonored, but it's raised in glory. It, it, if it didn't die, it'd never go on to the next thing. If it wasn't planted, it wouldn't die and be raised to life. And then number four, this is a natural body. Flesh and blood, it has raised the spiritual body. So is there life after death? Paul says yes. You know, these are all questions they had because they were wondering about life after death. What is it like? It lasts forever, you won't age, your body will be glorious, your body will be in power, you'll have a spiritual body. First Corinthians 15 and 50 says, I declare to you brothers that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The closest thing we can imagine is the body that Jesus had when he was resurrected from the dead. Now the question is, is there such a guarantee of eternal life? Can we know that we have it, this guarantee of eternal life because of the resurrection? Yes, there is. There is. This is the final victory. The final victory. The last three verses of 1 Corinthians 15 says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying is written that will come, death has been swallowed up in victory. Victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is a law. Last verse, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What does that say? We win. In the end, we win. Now, you probably need to take this chapter and go through it a little bit at a time, piece by piece, because we can't unpack all of this. But I wanna just lay out some of these concepts and understanding of how the resurrection, what the resurrection means to each and every one of us, the gospel. I presided at a funeral of someone who was not a believer. 
And the only positive message I could give to the people there was that they could have eternal life if they so desired it. That death for the believer is not the end, it's a beginning, it's a transition point. Because Jesus defeated death. Is there such a thing as a guarantee of eternal life? Can we know that we have eternal life? Yes, we can. 1 John 5, 11, 13 says, and this is the testimony God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. He who has the son, Jesus, has life. He who does not have the son of God, Jesus, does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I've said to people before, and I've asked them the question, do you, do you know where you're going or do you know that you have eternal life? They, people, a lot of them would say, well, I kind of hope, I, I think I do. I, you know, say, well, you, the Bible says you can know. If you have the Son, if you have Jesus, believe in Jesus Christ. Place your trust in him. See, we're, we're separated from God. And the good news is God sent Jesus to live and to die for our sins, to restore that relationship. He's the loving, seeking God who wants to restore that relationship with people. To believe in Jesus means to acknowledge I'm a sinner, I can't save myself, and to place my trust in him except his sacrifice and believing in the resurrection that he's alive. It means making Jesus the leader, taking charge, then you too can have that same eternal life. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Is there life after death? Yes. It's the gospel. It's the good news. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to Peter, the twelve, and over 500 people at one time. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And in the end, we win. We win. You win. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us assurance that, that we can have eternal life. And I pray, Lord Jesus, today that if anybody's here that has a question about it, they would make certain today that they have eternal life. And I just want to say to everybody here today that if you have never asked Jesus to forgive your sins and to come into your life and make him the Lord, you can do that with a very simple prayer. 